The growth and development of people is the highest calling of leadership, said Harvey Firestone. Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachum, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. And I think this guest would agree with that and has personified it in the way he lives his life each day. And you can read it on uh, LinkedIn, very, very motivating posts. And I'm excited to share the conversation today with you. He's a go-to-market leader. He's an advisor. He's a coach. He's a dad. And this guy's been in the arena. He's had senior leadership positions at CA, BMC, and Microfocus. Currently, founder of Hunter X Enterprises, John Hunter. Welcome to Coach to Scale. Thank you, Matt. Pleasure to be here, man. Awesome. Awesome. Really, really looking forward to this. Let's uh, let's jump right in. You run into uh, a lot of myths, uh, whether they're excuses, whether they're myths, whether they're reality. You know, that's for others to decide. But let me ask you this. What's a myth in the business of coaching and leading salespeople, John, that you believe is either misguided or complete BS? Well, let me answer that question. Let's put some context around it for everybody listening, you know, because in this particular talk, um, we're primarily talking to enterprise SaaS companies, cybersecurity, automation, cloud, you name it, any domain. So I think it, the, the precursor to that question starts with the industry that we're in is the most competitive industry on the planet. If you found your way into this industry by accident, you may want to get out. This isn't for any everybody. It starts with an, an industry that's moving so fast because of innovation, change, um, just money, the, the currency, the, the, the value that's being born every single day. You just can't be of the faint of heart. You can't be slow. You can't want to coast. You can't want to be comfortable. You can't want to be safe. That This industry just doesn't allow it. You Don't have say to have it. That's right. This is a radically changing, you know, dynamic industry that draws to it the best of the best to come in here. Because what do they want? They want wealth creation. They want to move fast. They don't want to sit in a cube for 30 years and push paper. They want to, they want to you know, really adapt. They want to be the resilient people who want to be in this industry because they think they're what I call corporate athletes. So setting that table, Matt, you, you know, we, we, it requires the best of the best to be the most trained and strategic and the most thoughtful mapped with that intense competitiveness, that ferocious get shit done attitude, the getting in early, the staying late. I mean, if you don't have those, those are table stakes. You won't make it a year in this industry if you aren't the hardest worker, if, you are, if you're entitled if you just want to, you're looking to work from home and leave it for and get jelly beans and free massages, it is going to be a short stint in this industry. COVID delayed it a little bit. It got a little funny in some of these companies. But in this, in this industry, it's going to require this, this, this ability to work hard, hit hard, but also be strategic and plan and thoughtful. And that's where the myths set in. And with that comes learning and training and coaching in order to always get better. And a lot of times, if you're in this industry, Matt, and your heart rate's up and you're in war and we're going to get acquired or we're not going to make the quarter or the month, what goes out the window? We go into fight or flight mode. John Hunter's calling you. Matt's calling you to offer you new tools. And what do you do? You say, hey, guys, I have no time for you. I've got to keep my head down. You don't know what it's like to be me. I have to survive. You go into fight or flight mode. And that is where I see a lot of myths, a lot of um, avoidable mistakes. Um, and the term I like to use is becoming half monk and half hitman. This ability to marry that awesome work ethic, low entitlement, get stuff done with 
strategic thinking, planning, breathing, influencing, and we combine those two in this industry, those are the people that should be running the best companies. So so um, half hitman, half monk, a lot of what you're talking about uh, in, in your comments right there, lean more toward the, the hitman, right? The, you know, the, the junkyard dog, the, the meat yeah. eater. Um, but you pivoted there a little bit and you're talking about half monk, you mentioned breathing. I mean, is there a misnomer there that when people hear this, they're like, wait, wait, I'm not a hitman. I'm not aggressive. I'm not pounding the table. I'm not a blowhard, right? Like they put, they put those types of folks in the box. But is there also a myth there that, you, you know, do you have to be that person all the time or is there something else? Yeah, well, first of all, there's there's myths and, and perceptions and, and stereotypes all over the place. You know, you don't have to be extroverted. You don't have to be introverted. You don't have to be blue, green, purple. You, um, you can be of any shape and size, but you have to have that drive. You have to have that industry pace for change. You've got to know if you have a follow-up action item and you can take four days to do it, but you could have, or you could get it done in four minutes. You've got to be wired for the four minutes. You don't have to be a blowhard. It doesn't mean, you know, your neck's bulging with, with profanity, but we want to move. We have to follow through. We just have this clock ticking all of the time. We're going to get acquired or we're going to acquire the next guy. That's the way CA was for a long, lot of years. I didn't make that up. It was in every newspaper article around the world that we were going to get acquired. We were software goes to die. We were, you know, bottom feeders, Larry Ellison. So that required hiring and developing a sales force and a leadership team that really embodied, hey, we don't take anything for granted. We're hard workers. You can be of any shape or size, but we want to have these attributes consistent. And then we wanted to be able to take a step back with all that junkyard dog DNA. And then we want to say, okay, we have to think about new ways of going up the mountain, new ways to sell, new ways to partner. Partnering is a good example, Matt. I mean, you know, in that fight or flight mode, I can't tell you if someone's listening, had the urge from early days of CA, you know, partners were a waste of time. Partners were, uh, okay, give it to the channel and let them fulfill an order. Right. And so it took a really strategic monk-like attitude to say, you know what, we're still going to build a hard-hitting direct sales force, but we're also going to learn to adapt to having multiple channels to market. Deloitte, KPMG, Accenture, these guys do amazing things. The cloud service providers, bringing other people into our world, sharing with them our outlook and building out partnerships, for example, was one thing that would be an example of a misnomer, a myth, a, a metaphor a stereotype was just wrong. Partner, partner friendly CROs are the best CROs on the planet. Doesn't mean they're weak. Doesn't mean they're soft. Doesn't mean they miss their numbers. It's actually quite the opposite. But, you know, in a lot of places, they'll stigmatize that. And it's an example of what you were mentioning is we got to um, we need to we need to integrate both. I think when you and I were coming up in this business, there was a perception. The intention wasn't there, but the perception was there that if you were partnering and partners were doing a lot of the business that, that you were weak, you know, why do I need you? Why don't I go get somebody else? And there was that, you know, I think you and I had this conversation about, you know, the, the two in the box, right. And the, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in, inside the company, whether it's, you know, partnering, but the opposite is true today. The, the companies that have, uh, well-established channels where, you know, they can, they have more people selling for them. Those companies are more valuable. They're, they're, they're getting uh, higher funding. They're getting quicker funding these days. Would you agree yeah. with that? hundred percent. It's trust, right? You mean you, you're in the coaching business, you know, for me, my partners would be in my coaching conversations. They're partners. I was notorious and micro-focused. I would have the partner community come into our internal financial reviews. And people would be, well, you, you know, they don't work here. You can't let them in. But they're our partners. We should try to make them exposed to our good, our bad, our ugly, what's keeping us up at night, our fears, and share them with our partners so we can have this trust. So when they're in that customer site or in that market, in that country, we don't have that voice in our head saying, oh, we don't have control. Because that's really what it is. You want control and you don't have trust and we don't have the relationship and we don't have that bi-directional, you know, calling me out. 
you know, I coined it the Irish kitchen, right? This ability to have such trust that your partners or your employees call you up and say, you know, Hunter, you know, that's, that's, you're full of shit. You know, you, you didn't do what you say you're going to do. Yep. It's an integrity issue. And so um, when you build all that trust, and sometimes it means narrowing down your partners before you build them back up. I've seen that classic mistake where we just, you know, make commitments to a thousand partners without having that integrity and relationship and trust. And that doesn't work. Same with our employees, same with our customers. So it sounds Forrest Gump simple, but the reality is it's not. And it requires restraint. It requires diligence. It requires patience and that hard hitting energized. And as far as two in the box, man, let's just talk about that. All right. It, it, it is a nightmare. I mean, I, I, I feel for those of you out there who are in it. Where can you explain where, it, John? Can you explain it? I mean, yeah. I, you and I know it, but it, what it is, but. Well, there's, in my opinion, the world is dividing into two camps, fear and non-fear. And there are those that maybe not on in public, maybe not on LinkedIn, but they'll certainly say it privately. They'll say, John, fear works. You're wrong. You know, we, we, we put two in the box, meaning we'll put two people assigned the same job and let them fight it out. Fight it out. The toughest, win, you know, most productive person wins. You'll get the role later. And the company enjoys the productivity while you guys all kill each other for, for um, you know, glory and title and money. And I get it. I've, you know, I've grown up in some of the most ruthless sales environments in the world. And I'm a reformed barbarian. Trust me. I have done things, whatever it took to win. But I've been reformed. And my opinion is it just doesn't work for the long haul. You're giving up on people. You're giving up on coaching. You're giving up on the human spirit. People that have come to work for me are usually the most competitive people on the planet. They don't need to another person to make them more competitive. Matter of fact, great coaching for them is pulling them back. Pulling back, bit. right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I won't name names here, but there's some people I'm sure will be listening who have worked for me directly who I wanted to say, Hey, you got to get this quarter done. And I, I caught myself through my coaching, through me having coaches say, Hey, Hunter, calm down here. You're a 10 out of 10. She's a 10 out of 10. Lighting her up is just going to get a city burnt to the ground. That's not very helpful. What can I say to actually help this person happen to be a woman? The one I'm thinking about, um, have a more creative, in successful quarter. And in that particular example, it was, Hey, get on your Peloton, take a break. It's going to come to you. You got this. And I have your back. And that's you not instinctively back. what I wanted to say. My, my competitive juices were like, Hey, we got to win. Right. As I got more coaching and got better at it. I was like, Hey, no two in the box for me. It's your purview. It's your responsibility. We got your back. We live in a meritocracy. We rank everything in my world and we publish it. So there's nowhere to hide. So there's no need for this, 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 this silliness, in my opinion. And most of my work today is with those that believe in no fear. The people that believe in fear typically um, stay away from me. Awesome. It, you know, you talked about being a reformed barbarian. And um, by the way, uh, we, you know, people who know you and know those stories can share them in the comments when we uh, when we drop the podcast. But uh, a lot of that to be able to be that reform barbarian, it means that, you know, you have to have trust. You have to have confidence. You have to feel like you're in control. And a lot of leaders, a lot of really uh, high potential, talented leaders can't get there and they, they find themselves in a tough situation. And, and maybe that leads into the a question. What's a core belief you have about leadership and coaching that you believe sales leaders would benefit from grasping a little bit more firmly? Well, let me take that where I think you're going with it as far as like the lifespan. I mean, let's just call it out. I think the CRO community is down to about 14 months lifespan, life expectancy. Um, I'm just, I talk to them every day, I'm listening to them. I usually post with them in mind. And so I'm always asking myself, what, how do we expand that? How do I help them? What can I give to the, you know, in the coaching leadership, you know, I try to give stuff in the real world, stuff they can use today, managing your, your founder, 
right? If your founder is off base, if your founder of your company has got just gone through what I'm calling this, this, you know, fake unicorn syndrome coming out of these weird valuations, and now they need to have a tighter relationship with the CRO community, it is part of the CRO's responsibility to build trust with their board and their founder. We tend as a community to take our ball, take our numbers, build our plans and go off into a hole. We cannot do that. We can't just say it sucks, you're weird, the product is no good, the marketing people don't understand. It's, it's not everywhere, but part of the challenge is influencing. It's building currency as Carla Harris is, you know, is noteworthy on. $3 is relationship currency, never erodes. Performance currency is $1 and it erodes pretty quickly. No one remembers your last great quarter. So some maturity has to happen here in this coaching. So that's where we're coming back to the monk a little bit. Instead of getting on that seventh forecast call, you're looking at, hey, have I spent any time with my CMO on my plan? Have I asked the head of engineering how he or she is doing about the next product release and how I can help them? How self-aware am I and how much feedback am I willing to get from my peers, my boss, the board and others to show humility and humbleness and an appreciation for how others work? So then when you are proposing change, they're listening to you. You're one of the team. And I've just seen more often than not. We're proposing things out of context. We're speaking with an elevated heart rate. We're almost yelling. We're almost condemning and criticizing and judging because no one understands us. And it's a very easy role to feel that way because no one right. really does understand us. We're the only role in the world that gets managed visibly by everybody. If you're a public company CRO, everybody sees your performance. Everybody, your mom, your grandma, your neighbor, you're driving home. You know, John Schweitzer over at Informatica, my buddy, my college buddy, everyone can know if John Schweitzer, he's killing it. But if he wasn't, you would know it. And even get defensive and you start, well, here's what happened. You know, we end up taking it personally. And so this is a lot of character development, a lot of self-esteem required. To be a CRO, you have to be like a cornerback in the NFL. You got to be able to let it go. But we also want to be a great teammate. And I think these are some of the coaching myths that go out the window that we just we're going to try to outwork our problems as the pressure gets hotter and the and the numbers get heavier. We tend to go to fight or flight mode and we tend yeah. to just outwork our problems. And that's where I like to see people try to build bridges, influence and bring people with us as we advocate maybe a new plan design with the whole team buying in. Instead of putting your helmet on and just, you know, gearing down uh, a, a little bit harder. Uh, John, for the people, for the leaders that aren't working for the CEO, that aren't CROs yet, um, does this manager boss go down to all levels of, of leadership? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember being a frontline manager early days at CA, you know, founder culture still. And I remember the IBMers were starting to come in and I was, and I was full of myself. My numbers were great. My calendar was a mess. I was outworking my problems. And um, I just remembered um, one of the new people coming in, a coach coming in said, um, that looks great if this is going to be what you want to do the rest of your life. It was a backhanded compliment. <laughs> and I just remember being smart. I remember my parents were teachers. It's in my podcast. My dad was a PhD in theology. And my mom's. So I have a little bit of EQ. At the time, it's grown my, over the years. But I had a little bit of empathy to say, what did he just say? And he basically said, hey, look, if you want to just be the sales director the rest of your life, then keep doing what you're doing. If you want more, then you've got to be more strategic with your time. You're going to have to get your job done, what we called, in, I think we called it success at 40. Get your day job done in 40 hours a week. We all work more than that. Free yourself up to go, hey, boss, at the director level, if you're a sales director, you want to be VP? You know when you get VP is when you start doing VP things as a director. And what is that? That is saying no to a bunch of weird meetings. It's stop people pleasing, doing your reps work for them. It's building a system underneath you. It's embracing ops and finance and HR, making them part of your team. So you can be that director that goes to the boss and say, oh, you need someone to run that initiative to roll out the new coaching platform? I have time to do that. Well, wait a minute. You're not going to miss your number? Nope. Number is booked. 
Pipeline is amazing. Conversion rates are going through the roof. My team underneath me is better than me. And I got plenty of time to help you, boss, go to the next level. And that that is just, uh, that's what I learned at a very young age. And that's what I try to coach a lot of directors to go become VPs. So not only don't, it's not just dress for the job that, that you, the next job that you want, it's do the work in your current role for the yeah. next role that you want. Uh, amen 100%. to that. Amen to that. Why, why, why would you dress up, you know, go back to my example. If I would have simply put on a tie, but I was still out of control and my business needed me on every deal and every review and every approval, you know, the new bosses would have come in and said, Hey, let's leave John there because you can't scale and let's go promote or bring someone in from the outside. I just, I just caught enough of that to look around in my environment, look at my, my ops team, look at my admin. And I made some changes in my life. And I started at that point building success through people, not through me. And so, that was a big change. So on that topic, John, uh, you, you talked about saying no, you know, that leaders need to say no to stupid meetings and, um, not, you know, not try to do their job of their people. We hear a phrase a lot lately, servant leadership. Uh, you know, for some, that could be a bit of a fluffy phrase. It has a myriad of meetings. What, what does it mean? What does servant leadership mean to you? And maybe even more importantly, what doesn't it mean that perhaps too many yeah. people are interpreting? Well, most people never read the book, never studied it. You know, it's, it's classic in sales communities. Um, it's just a very, it's a community that, in my opinion, learns differently. So, you know, having people read volumes of books in Academia 101 doesn't usually translate very well. I'm notorious for being the Forrest Gump of translators. A picture and three takeaways is how I like to teach in this community and then reinforce it and reinforce it and reinforce it. So servant leadership to a lot of people, they, they've never gone deep and really understood it. So what it comes across um, as the, what it's not is my job is to serve my people, whatever you need. People pleasing 101. Um, I, What's I, an example? Getting, What's an example of that? My, my, my reps don't know how to get the deal closed. I'm in a meeting. I'll, I'll give you real life examples. Um, I'm the new director. I'm going to a meeting with marketing to, to roll out new tools to double our pipeline Rep comes in, says, boss, I need you. We're going to lose the ABC deal. They leave the meeting. They they heroic in. They do it. They push, push the meeting. That meeting gets rescheduled and it screws up the rest of their calendar. They miss dinner with their wife. They don't work out. I have fun with it. I basically say you get you know heart disease. You end up in the hospital, get divorced. And, and you make 0.02%. They make 10% on the deal that you close for them. And the whole thing just falls apart. You feel cool in the beginning. Hey, deal closed. Look at me. But then when you realize that's not your job anymore and you miss the important meeting. And the, the key takeaway is this, Matt. The, the thing to say is not taught, not coached. Mary comes in for the meeting. Hey, Mary, can't talk to you right now. I have white space on my calendar at noon, two hours. Why don't you do this? Why don't you and your teammates Go build three solutions you think are going to work to recover the deal. I'll review them for you at noon. You guys are amazing. I know you can do it. Monkey back on them, back on your white space, and you go back to building the marketing team idea so you can actually do your job, which is to double or triple the pipeline creation to begin with. And you, you just see it all the time, which is just, hey, my people, I'm going to read Glassdoor. I'm going to read my employee surveys. God, don't quit. I can't have anybody quit. If anyone quits, anyone writes anything bad about me, um, it's bad. I need to serve them. And it's funny with parents, Matt, because if you if you play that out, and I, well, I often will do is I have four kids. Where's my camera? Four. And you say, hey, to a parent, is that great parenting advice? They'll immediately say, no. No, I'm not a servant leadership with my kids. I need boundaries. I need Wait. rules. But John, my, my, my kid says he wants to eat jelly beans before, right before he goes to bed. I can't, I must, should I just say yes? Well, you can, but you're going to have the consequences of rotted teeth and bad sleep. And <laughs> he's going to come to you later. He's going to say, thank you, dad. Today, I have the best dad ever. And when his teeth rot out and his grades fail, he's going to look at you at 22 and go, dad, what was wrong with you? 
Yeah. That is what coaching is all about. That's what brought me into Hunter X is not the immediacy gratification. I got zero of it. I was told the other day, you know, why was I such an asshole? And, you know, one of the, one of my stops from a guy who had figured it out and benefited from the coaching, but it took like six years. I kid you not. It's not uncommon for me. Sometimes it's nine months. Sometimes it's six weeks. It just depends. Ideal clients, are. slow learners with deep pockets, right? And so in your case with kids, right? You know, I was at a couple of weddings this year where the daughter is thinking, I told this to my daughter who's 16, the daughters are, are none of the daughters are saying, dad, thank you for letting me do whatever I wanted. Thank you for letting me stay out till two in the morning, drinking booze and, and, and scrolling endlessly on Snapchat. No, they're all saying, dad, thanks for being a pain in the butt. I get it now. And this applies to this misnomer on servant leadership. We're not people pleasing. If I see an overzealous green glass door, everything's in green, my spidey senses are up. Somebody's not pushing somebody. I don't want a ton of red either. You don't need to be a tyrant. Right. But tough coaching is, is implementing boundaries. It's discipline. It's building lean muscle mass for a company, which means no shortcuts, no entitlement, tons of discipline. And not it's not for everybody, but it's needed. Let's go back to the original industry demand. It is absolutely essential so the real truth on servant leadership, Matt, is the attitude of you, that it's not about building title and how many people report to me. It's being, hey, in order to truly serve people, I'm going to do what's right for them, not people please, and not make it about my title and about how many people report to me. And I think that's what's confused. All right. And, and so the way you've described it, right, it's you started right off the bat setting the expectation about who we're talking to here, who our audience is, and that it's not easy. Um, I've also read you, uh, you've wrote about uh, how we lead and work in peacetime versus wartime. Um, where are we? Well, well, so first of all, man, that's a very real experience. I was in Silicon Valley with my good friend, Bill Bench, Battery. Shout out to Battery Ventures. Super smart guys. Bill Bench is, is top 10 all-time CROs. Uh, every time I'm with him, I learn something new. And I've been blessed to be around um, you know, some of his CROs. And you know, it's really less about Battery Bill, than it's about... It's about uh, yeah, you worked with Bill at Oracle. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, Bill and I go back to 1999 at Oracle at 222 Berkeley Street in Boston. Yeah. That's where I met Bill. Yeah. Well, so side note, I mean, we're both in Arizona. Um, you know, a recruiter introduced us because there's no one else here but Bill and I. You know, I think there's like five other tech guys here, tech women, men. So we met and we've just been dear friends. And I learned from him. And I shared with him on this leadership topic. And um, I've been around a bunch of CROs. Some of them are his in his community. And to me, it was a, it's, it's a, a true example. It was a slide. It was, you know, all these CROs going through this downturn over the last nine months. A downturn, I, in my opinion, was coming a long time ago that I've been calling in the sense of, you know, what I did. So I saw weird valuations. I saw growth numbers that didn't make any logical sense to me. And I just didn't fit and didn't understand it as far as how I see the world. So as we've come into that downturn, you saw this um, this wartime versus peacetime. Now, if you go back to, to so things in there were, were like uh, three out of wartime, three out of 10 projects get funded. Um, the minimum amount will be funded per project. Uh, biz case required. You know, I think those of us at Oracle, CA, other places, I don't think we consider this necessarily war. I think what happened is since the Challenger sale came out in 2009, 2010, with Mr. Dixon, I think we all got really good at learning this lesson. And what happened? You know, we got seduced back into it. COVID hits. Yeah. We all thought, holy shit, you know, we're all going to be cutting. And, and then we saw, oh, wait a minute, Zoom works and Teams works. And we had this weird phenomenon where we said, hey, maybe this pipeline is going to stay. And then the government funding happened and we had a bunch of weird revenue come in. So it Stable, it gave us more optimism that these valuations would stay. And then, of course, all of that was fool's gold. It was um, not real. And so I think, you know, these things of um, guiding the buyer, believing in pipeline building every day, um, a mentality of why your deal won't close. These were examples on the uh, wartime. Um, 
I think they're all the time. I mean, this, yeah. this would have been normal for building uh, the value selling machine. We built at CA. It was C level relationships. It was ROI business case all the time. It was consensus buying. It was all of that all the time in order to, to thrive. And so um, I think it's an opportunity for those who know it. It's easy. This is so awesome. You guys get to just reconnect to your tenets of value selling that you've always known. Get those motions going. For those of you who don't know it, learn it, baptize yourself, get inundated with all of these disciplines. And um, people are spending money, man. I mean, there are winners and losers out there today. And it's about the attitude and the discipline and the mentality of the winners. And the losers are blaming people. The losers aren't changing. The losers are hunkering down and not investing in coaching and leadership. And the winners are leading and coaching and value selling and going after it. And, and that's, a, that's a big difference right now. There's always a bull market somewhere. And basically what I hear you say in there, John, is if you always treat it as though it's quote unquote wartime, um, you're, you're going to be fine. And yeah, you know, my my drill instructor, I remember at uh, the Marine Corps, he said, uh, "The more you sweat in peacetime, the less you ble- bleed in war." And uh, you know, I think it's uh, analogous to what you're talking about there. That that said, th- there's a lot of excuses out there, and you know, it's sometimes from an empathy point of view, it's it, you can understand where the excuses are coming from. But at the end of the day, they're excuses. What are some of the you know? What's one of the excuses you hear way too much? Um, that maybe just ticks you off. Uh, what, what is the excuse you hear? And uh, how do you suggest coaching people through it? Well, no time, no money, no need. They're objections. It's, it's, it, it's a little sliver of it for, you know, depending who I'm talking to. It's, you know, I'm coaching people at mega billion dollar enterprises who are going to say, hey, we're dysfunctional internally. Uh, my CEO doesn't get it. You know, we have, you know, we're number three. You know, we, we just dropped out of the magic quadrant. I'll give you a real life example. When I went to BMC, hello to BMCers out there. It's an amazing company. Um, one of my jobs was to help really rejuvenate the ITSM team. At the time, they just dropped a smidgen in the magic quadrant, and you could see some tough, you know, love going on. And in a man, I've never been in the magic quadrant, so I'm just thrilled to be there. I'm like, this is awesome, guys. Attitude is everything. It's everything across the board from our product needs work. We're number three in the market. Um, you know, we're, uh, the, you know, COVID um, stimulus, interest rates, Ukraine war, the Chinese hackers, um, you know, you name it. You know, we just made layoffs. Here's a good one. Everyone listening has been through a layoff. So now's the time to get, get over it. Understand why understand what just happened, understand what change I need to make and go make the changes. No more complaining, no blaming. I I call it in Hunter X, one of my offerings is responsibility psychology. We are responsible for everything in our lives. You're a CRO, you just got fired, great. Sucks, go drink your six pack of beer, go do a lessons learned, Let's go learn from it and then let's move on and go to the next one. I mean, that's just part of responsibility psychology that I think is really missing and something needed to overcome any objection, to go do the work to reframe, to get over those objections and to win despite your customer's dysfunction, your own company's dysfunction, your own team's dysfunction, even your dysfunction. You can overcome with the right attitude the right discipline, and the right coaching. No excuses. Nobody cares. Figure it out. Um, you you and I had a chat about the importance of winning the hearts and minds. And you said something along the lines of, hey, Matt, uh, rolling out sales metrics is easy, but getting people to believe in, getting buy-in is, is hard. Um, can you elaborate on that? How do elect- effective yeah. leaders do that? Yeah, Bill and I had this conversation because, you know, there's no one who knows models better than Bill, um, you know, in, in ratios and MRR, NRR, ARR, all the acronyms, all the latest numbers. And and, there, and you should. You got to know these models. And Bill is, by the way, Battery's published a ton of best practices. He's made them all available, which is super generous of him. Um, when it comes to me is, is my training. And remember, CA Technologies under Bill McCracken and a regime when the IBMers took over 
John Swainson, others hired coaches. We had coach, we had a full-time culture coach, Dr. Pat Latore, for over two years. We had Dr. Lou Tice before that. We had other coaches coming in left, right. So we had five dysfunctions of a team. We had to read books on power and influence. We had to get 360 degrees, you know, interviews on us, which Mark Thompson, hero of mine, used to say, this is getting your PhD and being an idiot because it was so embarrassing and so, you know, humiliating almost to have people go, well, John Hunter really is a blowhard and he's too aggressive and he does war themes. And I was like, oh man, but (laughs) it made us better. And one of the things it taught us was a book called Leadership on the Line. I highly recommend it. There's one book coming out of today for every leader who wants to be an amazing coach and teacher is Leadership on the Line. One of the key takeaways, Matt, is that there are adaptive problems and technical problems. Adaptive problems that people have to put their fingerprints on it. New comp plan a lot of times. New sales process. Everyone goes reads MedPIC. Looks pretty straightforward. Embracing it, living it, doing it is an adaptive problem, especially if they've not done anything close to it for a number of years. So you read that book, you break into work groups, you know, you can bring in outside help to kind of get the people to go, oh, wait a minute. Now I know why we're doing this. Why we're doing it. That's why. Yeah. So if you're if you're a CRO, you're taking over got a couple of these clients, taking over 200 million, going to 500 million, you have to have your why. Change is coming. You better be better. Tell get that why right because I've never been able to take a job and fire everybody and say, "Yep, we're going to miss for the next two years. I'm going to redo the sales force." Um, you know, that's your first ticket out of there. Is we need to get hearts and minds. We need to go listen to people. I call it go in like a lamb, go out like a lion. Really build trust. Listen even when you know the answer. Build in those work groups to put their fingerprints on what we're doing really well today. We want to keep and introduce some new ideas, some new techniques, some new processes, and make them go, oh my gosh, instead of being John Hunter's plan, which is a real life story, it becomes the team's plan or the team's system. And that's change management. It is highly going unserved right now in a lot of companies. I highly recommend everybody listening and rolling out a new anything, have a change management strategy, bring the people in early, Make them be part of it. Make the why clear, and just watch your productivity and your and your um, adoption rate go through the roof. Yeah, um, change management. Uh, no bigger change to our business than COVID, and then coming out of COVID is requiring a lot of change too. So, uh, sage advice there. <clears throat> um, teaching versus coaching. We've used those words uh, a lot. We hear them a lot. We've we've even talked about them a little bit so far. Uh, what's the difference? Well, it's subtle, but yet important. You know, I think all of us. Um, are in sales leadership need to be teachers. Um, teaching is how we bridge the gap between the fact that the current state is unacceptable. So that's us to our customers. That's teaching that it's doable, that there's credibility, that there's safety to go from current state platform, cloud legacy applications to desire state. If you're not teaching, if you're not following some of these principles on value selling and, and challenger selling, you're, you're not going to get there. And the same thing for your internal team. We're teaching them as we just talked about in change management. Teachers can be great coaches as well. They're different. What came to my mind was maybe a teacher, anyone on the call has had, then pulls you aside and says, hey, John, can I give you a little coaching? How does that sound? Doesn't that sound a little different? Now your antenna is up going, oh, boy. Everyone leaves the classroom. Everyone leaves the office building. And John Hunter gets to stay behind. And this is a real life story for me with a guy named Andre Kunin. Shout out to Andre Kunin, CRO. I think he's in Boston now doing cybersecurity. Um, Andre pulled me aside once. He said, John, you are John DeHunter. No, no, nobody really likes you. You are a bull in a china shop. You are like a maverick. You know, he's, he was Swiss German coming to the United States. My numbers were really good. So I knew the teacher's coaching was safe, but I was not very self-aware. So that that became coaching that um, that was just harder. It was more intimate. It was more sensitive. 
The teaching is the rules, it's the systems, it's the academics. It's super important. It's not yelling at you. It's not um, programmed. It's teaching. Teachers are, are super important. Then the coaching becomes a little bit more change-related personally. And that is where you can read crucial conversations and we can really hone in on being a better coach. Because usually the best coaching comes in highly stressful, emotional situations where you're having somebody like me who thought my shit didn't stink and it did. And I was a hard guy to give feedback to. I'm, I still am to a certain extent because we're hard charging a players, barbarians, but now we're working on our EQ. We're working on our empathy. We're working on our self-awareness and that's where coaches really earn their stripes. And, and I do think it's a subset or a partnership with teaching. So I, I got to ask you this because I know you share it a lot, but if I, if I remember correctly, uh, you are the son of, 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 of your parents who are, were a nun and a priest. Is That's that right? So yeah, it's in my podcast, a little intro. Um, yeah, they left the church and obviously early on in the sixties, mid sixties, but uh, yeah. So the reason I share it is it's a unique example of me being, you know, really the son of really spiritual people, but also teachers. I mean, my mom had a master's in English. My dad is basically teaching ethics. He's teaching um, histories of religion. And he went into the business world as he moved to Arizona. But uh, at the core of my being is helping people achieve personal success and business success. And at the core of that was teaching coming from my mom, hard hitting, almost hit woman, she would scrub floors. She would be on your butt. You would be dotting eyes, cursive. And then dad would be more like Aristotle with Alexander the Great. Like, hey, son, you know, why don't we think about that? You know, I think I'm going to quit, dad. I have a better offer for more money. My dad would be like, eh, I never heard you talk about money like that. Let's think about why you love your job. This is in the early days at CA. And I went back and I had the little monk from dad, a little hit woman from mom. Started combining the two, um, and it really worked, served me, and I do attribute a lot of my um, success to having really foundationally strong parents. Super strong story. Who knew that a, a, a nun and a priest could, you know, uh, have, raise a, a reformed barbarian? Really that, cool. I, I got to ask you this. Cool. I got to ask you this because I, I went to uh, Catholic school uh, my pretty much my entire life, uh, including college at BC. Um, did you ever get the? Did your mother ever get the ruler on the knuckles? Because I, I got I got that. Was that was that just? Uh, um, my, I will be honest with you. I think it's because my mom didn't need to use the ruler. I mean, her stare was so intense. Um, the the uh, there was there was some soap involved in a couple incidents that um, it wasn't dad doing the soap, but um, there was definitely some tough love. I mean, this is a woman just to put in context, maybe not rulers, but it's just the kind of the accountability. Let me just go deep on this one yeah. because we're talking about this coaching. We're talking <clears throat> about this longer term effect on people. So she, her main thing was teaching seventh and eighth graders in really tough neighborhoods, South side of Chicago and then West side of Phoenix. So for example, she would be notorious. If you didn't do your homework or something was going on that was inconsistent, she would go to your house. She'd knock on the door. Ding, ding, ding. Johnny didn't do, and she'd want to know. And so that discipline, that love, that, that integrity, and, and the, you know, they didn't like her very much when they had her because there was just no gray area with her. She's got a book in her assisted living home that is this thick with the letters from students who went on to college from these inner city uh, places, mm -hmm. thanking her, referring to her as the catalyst for having success in their life from one teacher when they were 12 years old, who didn't take the easy way and showed them the power and discipline of hard work. And I think, boy, if there was something that um, I'm using to kind of fuel me, because it, it sucks sometimes when both, a lot of your coaching and your people are like, oh my God, this is hard. You know, we yeah. want affirmation. We want to be able to go, I love my boss. He, he does whatever, lets me do whatever. But this is, helps me remind myself what the mission is building people up to have this longer term success. And um, yeah, she's still alive, doing well and still holds me accountable um, when I'm late and not seeing her often enough. 
uh, thank you for sharing that story. I actually seriously got a chill uh, from hearing it. And that just shows like what uh, one person, the type of impact that they can have where it doesn't really feel good at the time. And, um, it, you know, we had someone on the show, a, a professor management over at Georgetown, um, uh, Dr. Rachel Pacheco, and her phrase was, it's like feedback, you know, feedback, everyone needs it. It's like, it's like underwear. Every, uh, everyone needs it. Uh, but you know, sometimes when you get it, you don't really want it. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if that ever changes. I mean, people are asking me now, like, oh, you must be immune to it now, you know, and I'll get it on the podcast or I'll just get people to, you know, um, you, you know, you stink. I don't think anything you, you have to offer is, is valuable, you know, and you're looking at it like, what's wrong with you people? You know, I'm trying to help you. And, but then you realize change is hard. Some people will never change. Some people will kind of get it incrementally and some people get it right away. And that's just where you got to find the love and the spirit to keep going. I'll give you an example. Uh, I get on stage a lot. I'll be on stage next week. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And sometimes I'll tell the crowd, here's the way it's going to work with me. A third of you are going to go freaking, I love this guy. A third of you are going to go, I don't really understand this, but I kind of do. I'm, and I'm interested. I'm going to go further, but not 100%. And a third are like, this dude is a freaking lunatic. You know, I'm not doing any of this shit. And and I've just it's helped me just get uh, more, more, more armor on and go look for the third and look for that second third. And the third, third, I still love him. Good for you. You know, maybe go work for two in the box. Go, go, maybe go do it some other way. But if you ever come back, I'm always here for you. If you want to move to the other two thirds, then I do think two thirds of the community at some level want this integrity, this lean muscle mass for companies. That's what this is for me. This yeah. is no shortcuts. Don't take a pill. Don't get get rich quick. This is the tortoise versus the hare. The tortoise wins. Every single time, just my tortoise has flamethrowers on its back and we're moving, we're moving, we're moving, but with patience and persistence and empathy. Love it. Yeah, I, I heard, uh, you know, do a lot of speaking as well. And the way it was communicated to me, the way I learned it is there's uh, there's lifelong learners, there's vacationers, and there's hostages um, in, uh, in, in the room. That kind of maps to the, the three that you, know, you talked about too. I'm an idealist too, Matt. I, I, I mean, if I'm coming out next week anywhere, I'm trying to get everybody. I mean, I will not let myself be preconditioned that anybody listening, anybody is beyond helping. I'll take phone calls from anybody to this day. I make myself available. I don't charge for everybody. I'm not trying to make a gazillion dollars in this role I'm in now. I really believe at the deep core Everybody wants help and they just may have some self-esteem issues from whatever happened in their lives and whatever trauma. And if you can build some friendship and some integrity with them over time, they're going to open up and say, well, wait a minute. You know, I think maybe you, you can help me. And, and that is just a huge breakthrough for me. You just made me think of one of your recent posts. In your recent post, you talked about, you talked to uh, the that man, that woman, that leader that's, you know, 50 plus that got downsized. And the search to get back in the game is harder than they want it to be. It's harder than they expected. And they're beating the crap out of themselves, which comes back. It, it hits your self-esteem because, you know, a lot of people identify, right? There's identity and there's role. And a lot of people um, meld the two together and their role becomes their identity. And I know you talked about that. What advice do you have for those folks that are, losing self-confidence it's impacting their self-esteem because they feel like you know maybe maybe they had imposter syndrome for you know 30 years in their career and it's tough to get back in the game well uh thank you for bringing it up um, most of my posts in the last couple of years are specifically from coaching calls speeches dialogues with people and i just believe i try to make it confidential not necessarily stating names but you're, you're putting it out there and I get calls all the time. Like, hey, you're speaking to me. That was me you were speaking to today. That fuels me. And I had a guy last week who was like, maybe I'm a frontline manager. Maybe I need, you know, hey, look, I'm 50. Maybe it's time for me to basically mow the lawn. And I'm just like, what the F are you talking about? Who got to you? 
you were amazing. I think I put in, he was growing double digit. He had great productivity numbers. He had great growth. It was a private company. He had a founder who went to some seminar, read some bullshit article and said, no, I think we could do a hundred percent. I want to have a full head of hair. Ain't going to happen. You know, look, could he have influenced that family? You know, who knows? You know, back to my earlier talk track about, you know, I'm not advocating people just quit. I'm not a quitter at all. We try to influence. We try to, to adapt. We try to bring people with us. But the core of these jobs, first of all, if the average lifespan is 14 to 16 months, you aren't alone, people. They're all blowing out of there, right. especially the last two years in a row. Everybody blew out. Public company, private company, blue, green, everybody's out. So let's just get over that. You're not alone. And then you're looking at, well, what can I do differently to do better homework? I've seen a lot of CROs take gigs without asking a lot of good questions. So I strongly ask to get the data, the conversion rates and the, and the valuation. Are they takedown rounds? What's the new model going to look like? And, and, and be careful of being seduced by the money and the recruiters and the, the you're going to be bronze to be in the Hall of Fame. It's not the thing to be talking about. You know, it's about the long term tortoise versus hare data that really builds a strong company. And then we got to remember the mind is a tape recorder, always recording. So if you're putting into it, recruiters, your spouse, your neighbor, your uncle, your dad, your grandparent, whoever is telling you you're not good enough or what happened, John, why aren't you at XYZ anymore? Are you not good? Then you're going to live that tape. So I have a ton of examples over the last few months of, you know, men and women are just really like, hey, I'm in that space. Great. I'm going to help get you out of it continue to learn and go find that company. You interview them. You go find the company that meets your values, how you build systems, how your sales process, how you motivate people, how you recruit, because they're out there. There's some, in my opinion, imposters out there and there's the real deals. And some of those companies, man, are companies that just did a layoff, that made some mistakes. That's fine. I don't care about that. I care, do you have the self credibility and authenticity to admit it, make the adjustments into this new world order we're in, and then go hire the team to go in there to do it for, you know, three to five years. And maybe it's not making $30 million in 16 months worth of work, which is what a lot of people were signing up for. And by the way, guys, just think about that for a minute. You were signing up for $26 million for 16 months worth of work. Just sounds ridiculous saying it out loud. So now that we can just let all that go, Take back the Porsche, maybe get rid of the, you know, the the the, the seventh car um, and get back to some brilliant basics. Go make seven million over five years. And that's still a crap load of money. Do it right and just believe in yourself. So, so these examples were of men and women who just got right back in. They stopped all the nonsense at 50 is weird. 50 is perfect. 50, you can't, you can't even figure out what you want to be until 40 or 50. You haven't failed enough. You don't, you don't have enough context. You don't have enough gray hair or no hair. You are so productive now with your experience and your knowledge and your wisdom to go deploy that for the next six to 10 years and more that um, I, I am so bullish on anybody in that, in that range that your time is now. Gray hair, no hair. I know a couple of guys like that. Um, so, so you're, you've had a, a great career uh, building and leading teams. You know, I talked about those companies at the top uh, of the podcast. Now you're building out Hunter X Enterprises. Tell, tell the audience, what do you do and what do you love about what you do? Well, the way I look at it, you can hire me to transform your company and go work there. And you roll out all these systems and tools and culture and um, metaphors and hiring practices and teaming practices and everything we're talking about here. Or you help companies transform from the outside. You're bringing in these tools. You're bringing in these coaching tools, these best practices in the real world. So um, I'm doing everything I can do to help companies achieve success. For those that believe in this, the values, believe in these principles, um, they're hiring me to work on their uh, HR calls me quite a bit. Um, I'm a big fan of really empowered HR teams. If you're an HR professional out there, watch the podcast. 
You should be empowered. You should be funded. You should have money. You shouldn't be running around trying to find money out of the holes in the wall. It's bullshit. HR departments that are staffed with really great HR executives, um, to me, their time is now as well to help bring leadership and change. Um, same with sales leaders that want to go to the next level. I'm helping them deploy some of these things in the real world. I'm not an academic. I'm not a life coach. You know, I'm here to bring real world experience and deploy it for you in the real world so your team can can achieve success. So some of that is, is leadership talk. Some of that is SKO, motivational speeches. So it's usually centered around uh, leadership development, coaching, um, integrity rollouts and how integrity plays off in layoffs and tough times or integrity and in setting a new plan. And then this thing I mentioned earlier, responsibility psychology for your company and for yourself. I am responsible. I can do it. No blaming, no complaining and how important that is. So, so it's always, you know, work in progress around those issues. But yeah, if you're out there, you're rolling out your tools and coaching. Sometimes I can be a good change agent to help the company just get their head around change and why change is important and, and how to do it in the real world. And that's been super fun and invigorating. And super valuable. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And, and thanks for doing that. John, as, as we, as we close out, usually people who care about coaching, leading and developing other people were role models themselves. And I, I certainly know you, you shared that wonderful story about, about your mom and, and, and your parents, but can, can you also share a, uh, a story, maybe more corporate, um, on someone who's had an impact on your career. I mean, it doesn't have to be corporate. You can go anywhere with that. Yeah. The first of all, everybody I've worked for almost has been, has played a role. Um, George Fisher, Mark Thompson. Um, I worked for Mark Berenche at Open Text. Uh, I learned a ton from him. I worked for Stephen Murdoch at Microfocus. I've worked for um, Matt Gordon, Mark Perinello. Um, I've, I've written blogs about most of these people. Um, Dave Schwickerath, who was a Joe Sexton lieutenant, taught me a ton just coming out of, fired me, first guy to fire me and sent me off to Oklahoma. Um, so I'll give you a couple examples. But the biggest one was Greg Corgan at CA, IBMer. Uh, unfortunately, Greg, we lost Greg to leukemia years ago. Um, spoke at his funeral. I was devastated. I still am. Think about him all the time. Um, but he was committed to this, this no people pleasing concept. He, he created a sales director council that I made it on to. So sales councils for VPs and directors was part of his system from his 21 years at IBM. And he came into CA, worked in headquarters. And yeah, I think I was at a golf event with him. He saw my passion for selling at the C level. And he said, hey, we should put this guy, I had good numbers, put him on the council. Got to know him better, got to understand leadership. And then when it came time, I mean, you couldn't get promoted without being on the council. You couldn't just have battlefield promotion. So those days were over. You needed new skills. And then when it came time to be VP, uh, we were at a club trip and he ran into my wife and said, well, how does my husband get up in this place? And he said, he's got to move. That's Think about this, Matt, for all those listening, they wanted to bring in an IBM rotation practice to, to the most barbaric sales culture in the world. And we looked at him like he was nuts, but he was dogmatic. He's like, nope, you aren't going anywhere until you move to New York and you rotate, writing comp plans, working in finance, you know, working in the bowels of, of CA's headquarters, which I did. I moved my family, I moved my three kids and continued to, to, to just make me learn it the hard way. One example of that, that I talk a lot about the power of a meritocracy. We've talked about meritocracies, guys, there is a wrong connotation going on about what's wrong about ranking and publicizing metrics on your people. CA was notorious. We had pull position every single month. Everyone was ranked. We didn't fire everyone in the bottom third. That wasn't the point. It was knowing where you stand, that no one got promoted, knowing who you were. And Greg had some examples where I'd be with him on the road and watch people try to schmooze their way. And he would pull up the rankings and say, hey, you're number one in my heart, but you're number 34 in my business. And that's just a real teachable moment for everybody listening from a seasoned executive. And I got to watch it and understand that is the power of a meritocracy is that there's no favoritism. 
that nobody goes up for a buddy buddy. You got to earn your way. And lastly, um, when I did end up taking over a much bigger job later, he had left. I called him up. I said, Greg, you're going to be proud of me, man. I'm running North America. It's a big job. I thought he would just be super stoked, Matt. And he said, I wouldn't have done it. And I just went, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? And he said, I would have rotated you again. And uh, while that job went really well, we had some great results. Um, he was right. You know, that type of investment, that type of commitment to your people. Think about the long-term tortoise view he had on his people to want to rotate them. You know, he had a five-year plan at least on a lot, of, not just me, on a lot of people. And so uh, I'm thankful for that. I miss him dearly. And I'm trying to pay it back by giving all this wisdom and knowledge off to to leaders who want that same thing. And they're going to get a little bit of the same for me. I'm not going to, you know, if they get promoted too fast and they start struggling, I'm going to be the guy to help them. Hey, let's go learn how to do it correctly. And there's plenty of time. And, and uh, those, so those, those values are alive and well with me. A lot of gems in that story uh, about Greg for sure. Um, so again, uh, thanks for sharing. So I, I think that's actually uh a pretty good place to leave it before we close up any advice for people listening, especially John, that person who is that new leader, newly minted sales leader. And uh, he or she's trying to, trying to figure it out. Any, any advice for that type? Well, of in, uh, why don't we end on this that we talked about before and it does apply to the new leader and applies to the season. Let's please again, coaching is is confusing certain people. Somehow coaching and empathy is starting to sound like weakness in academia. It's not. So what I like to do for everybody listening, picture, and I would love for you guys in your podcast to start ranking everybody's favorite coach in their life. You guys could be the holders of this. I would love to hear people go, you know, it could be a professional coach that you know from watching professional sports or it could be someone in your personal life growing up. But I use this all over the world to break down the barriers between Americans and Germans and Americans and Japanese and any because everybody can identify culturally with the most productive coach they've ever, ever had in their lives. And I liked people to describe that coach. And I always say, was he easy? Could you miss practice? Could you show up late? Could you not do the training? And people in the room, young coaches, too, will say, Go write down what that early junior soccer coach where you won state. Walk me through what he or she was like. And I love him, Matt. They start going, she was tough. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean tough? Could you, you know, I got schoolwork. I want to go party. I'm on Snapchat. I don't really want to do my, you know, training today. You would never do that. What do you mean you would never do that? Well, she built a culture. She cared about winning so much that we had such discipline, such integrity, such commitment to excellence. He was an amazing coach and we won state. Why is it any different in business, Matt? Why? Why is it any different to doing you out there today, coaching your people to do the sales training, to do the to learning the new tools? to do the account mapping, to get into the, you know, make your phone calls and get into Gong and to use all, to be, why, why is it okay to be late? Why is it okay not to come into the office? Why is it okay to be average and, or to tell our coaching or managers, well, it doesn't translate into business. I just think that to me, this would be the, the sign off for, for you guys and this platform you provide and those leaders you're speaking to be that great coach you had or that you admire if it's if you're a Belichick, if you're a New Englander and you love the, the Pat's way, which is documented, build your Pat's system. When do they watch film? When do they lift weights? When do they do team meetings? Can you think you could tell Bill Belichick, yeah, we're just going to skip the next three days and, and go on holiday? It would never happen and um, I've seen this in Germany and France, and you know, no country is immune to it. Everyone has their great coaches, examples. And so I'm just a big fan of the term. I think the term is misunderstood. It kind of sounds like we're not tough. The best coaches in the world are ultra tough, ultra detail orientated, ultra data savvy. And I think 
enterprise software could use more coaches. Young Amen to that. And go Patriots. Uh, awesome. John, thanks so much. This has been great. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about corporate athletes. We talked about Hitman. We talked about monks. We talked about no two in the box, um, responsibility, psychology, meritocracy, and the importance of coaching and thinking about what are the attributes of that coach that we thought was the best in our lives. So um, really appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing those pearls of wisdom. Well, it's an honor. It's all mine. Anybody listening needs help. Give me a call. Just shoot me a, a DM on LinkedIn. I'm available for you. And uh, I wish you guys the best with your initiative of helping build out more productive, successful coaches. It's a, it's a team effort. Thanks, Matt. Awesome. And we'll put the information where people get a hold of you uh, in the show notes, as well as a couple of the book recommendations that you talked about. And so for everybody out there, thanks for listening. When this podcast drops, uh, you know, give a like. More importantly, let us know what you think. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you like to see more of? We're here to help. We're here to provide the best content possible in as interesting uh, a way as possible. So Thank you all. Um, and until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.